As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. All right. Hello, tow listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success, as sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait. Launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories. All lowercase, that's shopify.com slash theories. For my next few videos, it's going to take somewhat of a divergent path from the political matters that you've become accustomed to from this channel into a foray back to my roots as a theoretical physicist. I'm still going to talk about philosophical issues such as the existence of God, consciousness, and free will. My inaugural guest is the great professor Brian Keating, someone who I admire to such a degree that I was timorous and forgot familiar terms, how to pronounce them, such as homogeneity and isotropy. You'll see what I mean. He has a YouTube channel that I think you should subscribe to. It's one that I personally covet. He's handled such heavy hitter notables as Eric Weinstein, Jim Simons, Stephen Wolfram. Enjoy. No problem. All right, I'm here with Professor Brian Keating, the magnanimous and beatific Brian Keating. You should check out his YouTube channel because he interviews plenty of physicists, as well as people who are watching this may be familiar with, like Dave Rubin, some other of guests, which I'm not unsure why you're interviewing them, but we're going to get to that, which is, for example, the Beyond Meat people. Okay, first of all, let's get, get through the questions one by one. What are your goals? Explain to the audience what you do with your channel, what your goals are as you as a professor for your life. Yeah, so uh, my basic dictum in life is that it's incredibly short and you have to make the most of it and you have to do everything you can until we invent time travel 
we have to do everything we can in order to make each moment as meaningful, as invested in with meaning as possible. And so I do that in, in different ways, different habits, rituals, practices. Uh, but one thing I've always wanted to do is to write a book and leave a legacy as, a, as an author. And I've learned so much from other authors that I wanted to start something, especially during this time of COVID, to give back to people that have been my silent mentors or distant learning mentors, namely folks like, um, as you mentioned, Michael Shermer has been on my podcast. Uh, we've had people like uh, we, uh, David Kaiser, very famous and, and well-known physicist, uh, all the way down to people that have influenced my life personally that haven't written books, uh, such as Jim Simons, who we had on the podcast for Father's Day. And again, following Carl Sagan's dictum that books are magic. Books are proof that human beings can work magic. You have an author's voice, possibly a long dead author from communicating from hundreds or maybe thousands of years ago in the case of, you know, I read a lot of the Bible and, and things like that we can get into. And uh, how it influences me is uh, you get to create the sort of um, artificial, I call it artificial wisdom. We hear a lot, I'm sure you've had a lot of contact with people that study artificial intelligence. What I'm more interested in is artificial wisdom, namely how can you accrue wisdom without going through all the experiences that other brilliant people have gone through. So I love to uh, read books. I love to write books. I'm thinking about my second book now as we speak and putting it together based on a lot of the interviews and uh, things that have emerged from the conversations with these luminaries that I'm really uh, fortunate to talk to. How are you defining wisdom in artificial wisdom? So artificial wisdom is just kind of a playoff on artificial intelligence, namely that, um, <clears throat> that you have uh, an awful lot of knowledge that's available to humanity through things, Wikipedia, the internet, etc. But, uh, uh, and in fact, I remind people that the word science in Latin means knowledge, it doesn't mean wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to synthesize fat pieces of knowledge in a way that we don't know, but may be uniquely human. And I think synthesizing it to avoid, we, we, I'm also a private pilot, I fly tiny little planes, and one of the things we say is um, you have to learn from the mistakes of others because you won't live long enough to make them all yourself. So that's sort of the, you know, kind of the 10,000 hour rule applied to pilots, which I think is one of Malcolm Gladwell's examples of, of you know, truly outstanding pilots are those that have obtained 10,000 hours. And you can only get that far if you've done things and benefited from others' wisdom the situations that they've been in so that you don't have to go through it. So it's not just about knowledge. I mean, uh, I think Derek Sievers once said, you know, if, if it was all about knowledge, we'd all be billionaires with six-pack abs. There's an abundance of knowledge. Wisdom is synthesizing it, distilling it, and catalyzing the many disparate pieces that you get into some coherent form of, of, of life message or, or vision, which is what I try to maintain. Hmm. Have you heard of John Verbeke? No, I haven't. Who is that, Kurt? Cognitive scientist from U of T. So, mm. plug, okay. plug there. Who There's I also interviewed. There's two interviews with him on my channel. Oh, cool. He extensively studies wisdom from a cognitive science perspective. I think you'd oh, be, wow. Yeah, I would definitely like podcasts. to listen to him. Yeah, okay. Maybe we'll get in touch. You'll help me get in touch with him. Now, you mentioned that the mind might not be, the human mind might be uniquely predisposed or capable of wisdom. That is, 
the distilling of so much knowledge down to something that's practical, which implies a goal. And then we can talk about what, where do you get those goals from later when we get to the biblical section. Do you happen to, do you think that the mind can be mechanized? That is, what I mean is that a machine can simulate the mind. Yeah, so I've had some conversations with people about this. And actually, the most interesting people I've talked to are people uh, in the realm of music and the arts. I, I interviewed a, a controversial but interesting, very interesting person named Zuby. He's a musician in the UK. Uh, that uh, He does a lot of uh, rap and improv-based rap music. He's also very knowledgeable about uh, jazz, etc. And I also interviewed a very, my, one of my best friends, Stefan Alexander, who's a professional jazz musician, but also professor of theoretical physics at Brown University, Ooh. where I went to grad school. And uh, these two gentlemen have the idea that music can be synthesized and it can be made by computers, but there's something uniquely um, almost, almost endemic to human beings that allows for sort of what, what Stefan calls this path integral approach where the mind is exploring and seeking out to ways to minimize a quantity we physicists call action. And he's doing, doing it in a way that a computer can solve, you know, theoretically can reduce what's called the Lagrangian or solve this action principle, the integral of Lagrangian. But, uh, but it may not be able to create that idea. You know, the, the notion of an artificial physicist um, that Max Tegmark, who's also a friend and colleague, has proposed um, you know, the ability to replicate the laws of physics merely based on computing power seems dubious to me. I'm not saying it's impossible, but um, uh, these metrics that we have are often superimposed upon biases that the individuals who program the artificial intelligences, the machine learning algorithms, unconsciously or sometimes consciously bestow upon that. So the Turing test, you know, is the classic definition um, it turns out, you know, Turing, Turing almost inadvertently came up with it, or he, he wasn't necessarily thinking about it the way that we think about it now, but he was so prescient that he really presaged the fact that, yeah, this question of whether or not a computer, an artificial, general artificial intelligence could mimic a human being is, is certainly a very, very interesting topic to me. And uh, I've actually talked about it uh, recently with, uh, who did I talk about this week? Uh, I think it was, uh, it was James Altucher, who's like a pundit, blogger, prolific podcaster, author. And, and he was saying, that, yeah, like the Turing test, you could think about it being passed right now. Like sometimes um, I, give a, I give my, uh, my iPad to my, to my I have young kids. I'll give an iPad to them. And they'll play with it. And then they'll come back to me. And later on, they'll like swipe my face like they're trying to change the page on my face. You know, unfortunately for them, it doesn't change the way I look. <laughs> but um, but it made me think, like, could, you, could the Turing test be kind of age-dependent? Could, could, could the Turing test be uh, passed already for very highly intelligent uh, animals like, uh, like bonobos or, or what have you? In other words, that you could actually pass it already or young children. Uh, so a young child wouldn't know if it's their dad talking to them or an artificial intelligence. So I, I, th those are very fascinating questions. I don't know, however... Um, again, what is the impact? Because I don't, I'm not an expert in this field. But what is the uniquely human aspect of intelligence that proves so uh, resistant to perfect mimicry, i.e., the Turing test? I just, it's not something I personally, you know, investigated very deeply. But I think it is a very important question. Hmm. I was reading recently "Mind Machines and Girdle" by Lucas. Have you heard of that paper? I've heard of it. Yes, I haven't read it. He says that a mind, that a machine can simulate any aspect of the mind, but not every aspect. 
and that seems like a contradiction, but you can also think of it like a machine can simulate any natural number, but not every natural number. Right. And it can do and things he, better than human beings, right? I mean, right, we know right. one of the, you know what one of the best uses of a quantum computer is that a classical computer can't model, right? That's a quantum computer. In other words, a quantum computer is the ideal device, if you will, technology to model quantum processes, Lagrangians, Hamiltonians. The question is, as you say, you know, because it surpasses any human being or any conventional silicon computer or whatever, classical computer, uh, does that mean it could do so in every field? Uh, it's, it's hard to say yes. I guess that paper you're saying argues no. Yeah, and it says that we need to make a delineation between superiority and equivalence. So a computer can be much better than us, and it is in various aspects, but it doesn't mean it's equivalent. And he gives an in-principle argument for why it can't be used in Girdle. Well, if it's a formal system that's consistent and sound, then it can, there are statements that it can't prove to be true, but we can see when we stand outside the system that it's true. And just based on that alone, there's a difference between our minds and machines. Have you studied much of Gödel's incompleteness theorem? I, I've, I, I wouldn't say I've studied it. I've familiarized myself with it in the following sense, that I believe that, uh, that physicists have a deep uh, envy of Gödel's incompleteness theorem for the following reason. It's very hard to find statements about physics itself that come from within physics itself. In other words, it's very hard to say what constitutes physics, what constitutes scientific methods. Uh, some, as, as in your fellow Torontonian, or I guess he's in Waterloo, but Lee Smolin, who's a very mm -hmm. good friend of mine, he'll be on the podcast soon. Uh, mm -hmm. He and I have chatted about this. He actually doesn't even believe that the scientific method is, is, is resilient, you know, is a, is a truly um, a definable conjecture. In other words, he argues, you know, with the kind of Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, simple statement of what the scientific method is. He argues based on uh, a book that I can provide for you guys later, but um, there's arguments against the existence of even the scientific method. So now once you have this and you try to equate it and you try to ask like, am I wasting my life? Like I'm building this huge observatory with 300 of my most brilliant colleagues in the world. Uh, is it just a waste because ultimately it's tantamount to astrology? Now I think I could make very strong arguments that it's not. However, as we will get to, certainly there are aspects of this of this pursuit of studying the early universe that some claim are tantamount to astrology or tantamount to you know phrenology or something like this that we are so? doing. What's that? How so? So we can get into that one with regard to string theory, the multiverse. I saw you wanted to talk about that. Um, we should definitely get into that. But just finishing up on because you asked me about Girdle. Uh, so uh, what's important about Girdle is that it shows you the limitations of the mathematical, um, the mathematical construct that human beings have invented and discovered. Now I say that because Jim Simons and I had a wonderful conversation. I asked him, is mathematics invented or discovered? And he said it's both because the only way to find out what is new is to discover something. And when you discover something new, like the Chern-Simons relations and differential forms, et cetera, when you do that, you learn new things and you, in some sense, invent new technology. Literally, I mean, there are people that say that effectively Chern-Simons can be used to derive the Einstein field equation. So, you know, did Einstein, uh, you know, discover that or, did, you know, did he invent it? He used tools in mathematics that had never been used in physics. So getting back to Gödel, I think that physicists would love to have a similar statement, even though some mathematicians 
my friend Jan Eleven, who was on the, my podcast, I haven't released her episode, but she wrote a great book called The Madman Dreams of Turing Machines. And it's about Girdle mm -hmm. and Turing and this fictitious relationship between the two of them in Vienna. It's a fictional and book. It's a, it's a fictional book, yeah. So she's, a, she's an amazing writer. She's written best-selling nonfiction books about LIGO and about... Uh, Is about, she a, a physicist as well? She's a, yeah, she's a chair, named chair professor at Barnard College at Columbia University. Wow. Cool. Yeah, she's amazing. I would love to connect you with her. But she she writes fiction, and this book is this is this fictional kind of character of how they both you know were led to basically take their own lives and and what happened, how they did so. One did so uh, via ingesting a poisoned apple, uh, and one did so by starving himself to death. And uh, and just uh, just the amazing connections that she draws. Uh, it's been called like Maria Popova. It's her one of her favorite books of all time, and she's you know one of the most brilliant people. Anyway, getting back to Girdle. So I would say I wish that there was, and I think many physicists wish that there was something besides Popper. You know, Popper. We can get into his demarcation conjectures. Um, effectively, we don't have a hard and fast mathematically consistent rule, at least within the realm of self consistency that that Girdle delineates. We don't have something that tells me cosmology or you know a condensed matter physics is a waste of time because it's 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 logically as equivalent to or not uh to some other branch of of you know what we can consider metaphysics or non-physics like astrology so is cosmology like astrology uh we don't have as cleanly divided demarcations between those despite what most people think coming from popper now, as an, you're an experimentalist. The audience Correct. might not know that. Well, we'll know from the introduction, yeah. which is different than most of the people that I talk to. I talk to theoretical physicists. Yeah. And, and, and that puts you in a unique perspective. Many theoretical physicists, including Penrose and Feynman, I mean, Dyson, believe that, the, that Gödel's incompleteness theorem has something to say about our ability to come up with the theory of everything if they're ex and the existence of one as well. Mm -hmm. So whether or not we can find it and whether or not it exists is are two different topics. Well, what do you see as an experimentalist, Gödel's incompleteness theorem's implications for physics itself? Yeah, so, um, you know, I've had on Penrose, I had on Dyson many times, um, and, and Penrose many times, um, and Martin Reese and I have, have had wonderful conversations as well. I would say that exactly as you know, and you know, you're the first person to ever notice this. I, I don't know if you use like metrics with your podcast, Kurt. Like I always, if I ask somebody a question, they say, oh, I've never thought of that before. Or I've never been asked that before. Mm -hmm. Or they sit there like this. That's a sign of a good podcast. Okay. So mm -hmm. I want to give you that little metric, that little, uh, what do they call that? KPI, key performance. Oh, cool, cool, cool. So good job that. there. So, so almost no one has ever asked me, uh, about the unique perspective that an experimentalist has on this, and I think it's 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 um it's a little unfortunate because most many people see the theoretical physicists, the Brian Greens, the Jan Elevens, like I said, the Stefan Alexanders, Jim Gates, uh, Lee Smolin. They see the those are physicists. Michio Kaku. They they see the, those are the physicists, and uh, the you know and the Brian Keatings don't get the attention. Not I'm clamoring for attention of Brian Green. But the bottom line is they can work. And I had this conversation with Eric Weinstein yesterday, just the two of us uh, you know, hanging out and chatting on the phone. And I was like, look, you know, an experimentalist, I can point to the key performance indicators that I achieved every day. I, I keep a journal. I have, um, I, I have, you know, metrics for what I want to succeed in each day 
uh, today's list, I could show it to you in my diary across the room. I talk to Kurt and, and you know, communicate new ideas. So, uh, so I keep that. Now, a theorist might have one or two papers in his or her career, that, and that's their entire career. Now, some experimentalists might not even have uh, you know, uh, more than that in terms of one experiment. My, well, some of my experiments last 10, 15, 20 years. The LIGO experiment lasts 40 years from beginning to success, and we can talk about what that means uh, later. But, um, but basically, an experimentalist ha has a certain a clock that's ticking within his or her brain, and that clock is saying, what can I accomplish that will provide crisp new evidence that will reveal something new about the universe uh, that no one's ever known before so that my student can get a PhD or a postdoc or, or I can get... Uh, a little, uh, you know, continue the program of endeavor that I'm trying to achieve. And sometimes they're very big and sometimes they're very small. But on a daily basis, there's a clock ticking, tick, tick, tick. What did I get done? What aspect? Even if it's a simple thing. And, that, and that's where I think we have an advantage because, you know, as um, Richard Feynman once said, you know, it, it, Teaching is good for, for physicists because most of the time we're not productive coming up with QED or some new theory of physics. So at least we feel like we accomplished something when we taught. I feel mm. like that I get to teach and I get to learn uh, by experimentation every day, thinking about not exactly how to test whether or not the universe had a singular origin in the, in, in the Big Bang, which is a very important part of my overall mission. That's what I call the big picture strategic thinking of an experimentalist. What big questions do I want the answer to? Do neutrinos have mass? What are the masses of neutrinos? Is there um, a CP violation in the early universe? Those are huge questions. The tactical day-to-day -day activities that an experimentalist does are probably very different from what a theorist does. And I've written works with theorists. A lot of what I do is, is guided by theorists. Uh, but on the other hand, I can point to specific tactics every day that are metrics towards the ultimate strategic victory that I hope to achieve. And so I think it's a different perspective. It's more practical. It's more, it's sort of more, um, it's more quotidian, but on the same token, I think it's just as important as the theoretical guidance that we get. And furthermore, you can produce, I, I feel like theorists are, and I love theorists, but you know, my father was a theoretical physicist. Yeah. So I'm going to say this, no insult to all you theorists, but phys theoretical physics are kind of like bosons, not bozos. But you can create like a lot of them doing the same kind of cool stuff, and, but they won't be able to see if it's right or wrong until a fermionic experimentalist comes along and says, that doesn't comport. You know, we, don't, we don't play nicely, right? We're not going to just accept some theory because it's beautiful. In some ways, the, well... Ultimately, the experimentalists are the ground of physics because you can come up with ideas as, as much as you want. And I think that one of the reasons why theoretical physicists get, get much more play on, in, the, in the public's eyes is because, uh, I'd like to know your thoughts, I don't know if this is true, but this is what I think, is that they can be expansive and they can be mystical, but the experimentalist job is to be careful and say no. It's, it's the, the, yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. Maybe, 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 and that's more intriguing to the public because the experimentalist is to be fastidious and meticulous and exact and precise. That's Obviously, right. Yeah. a mathematician needs to be that same way, and you can make an analogy between theoretical physics and math. But that's not. My my father used to say the same thing. He used to say, "Actually, you need to know. You need to be better than a theorist because you don't have to create new theories. But if you don't understand how the theories work, you're." You know, in his words, he said, you're just like a plumber. And I'm not disparaging plumbers. I love plumbers. My, my cousin's a plumber, you know, so don't take this the wrong way. But you're just like doing a technical task. You're not actually doing it for the right reason, which is to understand 
using the principle of right reason, what is the importance of this undertaking that you're that you're pursuing? So, you know, I always make sure my students, my students spend almost as much time reading theoretical papers. And in fact, as you just said, I, I, I will, will make sure that they are in, in, you know, inundated, deluged by dead theories, by theories that didn't work out. Because I think that causes them to acquire the very most difficult trait, which is good taste. How do you know a problem is worth working on? If it's going to require, you know, a technology, like I had on uh, James Beecham on Monday this week, uh, he's a great scientist, he's in particle fever, he's helped produce particle fever, he was in Chasing Einstein, brilliant physicist. He's arguing for this future circular collider in Europe. He's uh, an experimentalist. And, you know, he's saying, like, my ultimate dream is like a particle accelerator at the diameter of the solar system. And, and I think it's fun to hear a talk like that because it's, it's science fiction and it goes with my podcast theme at the Arthur C. Clarke Center. But ultimately, what I'm concerned with is I've got, you know, hopefully 50, 60 years left. I don't know how much, you know, I'll be cognizant and be able to understand it. I want to know what I can accomplish that's practical, that's decisive, and that, as you said, that I, in my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, I talk about how experimentalists are kind of like exterminators. Our job is to kill off the yeah, bugs right. in theories and destroy theories that don't comport with evidence. We're not required to create new theories, although I've worked to try to understand maybe phenomenology is the best way to describe it. Uh, and, and also, look, what are the limitations of experiments? Don't forget, most of my career, I'm looking at noise. I'm looking at, at thermal radiation, which is basically like noise, which can be mimicked is the most highly entropic form of radiation that exists. How do you distinguish that, disentangle that from other sources of contamination, from the ground, which is 100 times brighter, the sun, which is 1,000 times hotter? Uh, how do you go about doing that? And uh, so most of our time is looking for ways to prove ourselves wrong, which, as Feynman said, is the job to not be, uh, to not be fooled. I, I think I did myself a great disservice when I was in university in, in that I disregarded experimental physics. I despised my, there was a second year requirement for experimental physics. And I just, it was never explained to me how, why you add the error bars in, in the way that you do. And I understand now it has something to do with Taylor expansion, but I never rocked it. I didn't understand mm -hmm. it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to spend the time to, and I, and I regret that because I think that as part of my mission is to come up with a theory of everything or integrate the other theories of everything or find the best candidate. I, I see that as a, as a large area that I'm lacking that would have significantly helped me. As yeah, well you know what scientists don't data do. data analysis. Right. So what scientists, and, and it's not, you know, I don't want to like take the blame off you entirely because I, you know, this is the first time we're talking, but, but I do want to say that we don't teach experimental physics properly, in my opinion. We teach it, typically we have a canned package experiment that we know works. How do we know it works? Because somebody won a Nobel Prize, you know, the Davis and Germer experiment, Michelson Morley, you know, so you can go through all these different Nobel Prize winning experiments. And then you get this uh, assumption that everything is, uh, is essentially these neat little packages. And as I said before, what I spend most of my time looking for is noise, and a lot of experimentalists do this, but there's two different types of noise. There's the statistical noise that more and more experiments and more and more observations can reduce to you know, almost negligible values. And then there's a much more important class called systematic uncertainties, and those are the most challenging because they require, as this is a huge theme of the book, Losing the Nobel Prize, which I thought was a unique contribution because I'm not Brian Greene, I'm not Michio Kaku, 
I'm not Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm not a theorist. I'm going to tell you why is it that certain people lost Nobel Prizes? Why did certain people win Nobel Prizes? And it comes down to understanding the fundamental difference of being an experimental physicist, which is you're always looking to prove yourself wrong. And furthermore, you're always trying to nail down these systematic errors. And to do does so- Does that generalize outside of physics? It probably does, you know, it probably does because I think there's bias and there's systemic features of, of other features of, of, of inquiry, not just in the physical sciences. Um, but I, people notice it every day. Like I said uh, in my book, I talk about, you know, if you have dirt on your windshield, you know, how do you know you have dirt? Well, you, you, you see a dim diminution of intensity of light or, or whatever. I go through an example of that. Uh, and what do you do to get to get to see if uh, uh, to see if you can make a difference and, and get rid of it? Well, you uh, remove it by water, and then you do an A/B comparison. So you're actually doing an experiment. You're seeing what was the difference between before and after. And in this case, we looked at uh, you know we were looking at this light. Now is it brighter? Yeah, now the light's brighter. Okay, so it had a difference. If it made it worse, if you washed it with concrete, you know, then it wouldn't get better. So um, so thinking about things in terms of a systematic error is something that will require you to do another experiment. And in my case, with the BICEP experiment and my colleagues, we failed to do a separate experiment by ourselves. We tried to do it in different ways that I describe in the book. I won't get into here. But we failed to do an experiment which would have ruled out the ultimate source of the signal we claim were inflationary gravitational waves, which is cosmic dust in our Milky Way galaxy. That required a separate experiment to get rid of. And now we all know that. And so now in the Simons Observatory, pictured behind me here in the Atacama Desert of Chile, and in the bicep array experiment my colleagues are running at the South Pole, we now have the capability to measure not just the Nobel gold-winning dust, uh, gold-winning uh, gold gravitational wave signature, if it exists, which we don't know, uh, but also dust simultaneously. And you measure the cosmic signal plus the dust signal, and then you measure the dust signal by itself, you subtract it from the cosmic plus dust, and what you're left with is cosmic Fascinating. Signal. Man, yeah. is that, okay, so in math and in physics, in, in theoretical physics, there are seminal books, like calculus on, on manifolds, that's Spivak, that's mathematics, then there's, whatever, there's some books for like a, the, the de facto text on quantum mechanics or quantum field. Yeah, theory, of course. Whatever. Is there, you know, I, 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 I shouldn't have done this, but when I was younger and I was arrogant and I ridiculed experimental physics, like, like a theoretical physicist would, they view it, I'm sure you know this, and you must boil with hatred, that they view it much like engineering. Yeah. And engineering is this... Is As I said, the plumber, you know, no offense to plumbers, but yeah, that's the way a lot of theorists view it. In fact, one of my friends, uh, I won't say his name because he's a brilliant, uh, he's a brilliant physicist and there aren't too many in the, in his department. Uh, you know, he's like, okay, so what, what, you know, did you change a valve today? Like, did you do a carburetor tune up? And again, he did you know, we were friends, but he'd come into the lab and I'd be like, well, did you write the same paper again? You know, about, uh, about membranes and D-brain. Yeah, go ahead. He's part, he's partly correct. It's partly some physical manipulation, but what I envy the most about your position is the understanding, the comprehension from various angles. From, from like you have to know these theories inside and out to be able to predict, to make an experiment, and to know what could be wrong. You have to be passionate. I agree with you, Kurt, one hundred percent. But you have to have the passion that that's curious and that's meaningful to you. I have a lot of students, Kurt, that are preternaturally gifted at building things, tinkering things. I actually worked on an old 1970s rabbit, uh, Volkswagen rabbit. You know, when I was in high school, it was my first car. It cost me, you know, less than my laptop costs me today. 
Um, and I love that thing and I love working on it and having a sense of satisfaction every day I could say, Oh, I tuned up the brakes or I lifted a suspension. You know, I lifted it by a micron or, or whatever I was nice. doing back then. And, and the point is that you, but that was because I had passion for it. Some of my students don't have passion. They don't, they don't think about the big picture questions a lot. Most of them do. Some of them are just really good. They can build in the clean room. They can build new types of detectors. They love the pure technology. They are doing engineering. There's tr look behind me in this picture. You see these telescopes, and it's hard to see, you know, over my shoulder. But there's uh, there are diesel generators. I have students that are like fascinated with how way diesel generators work. And if they didn't, and they're physicists, and they're doing logistics and what's called project management. It's so crucial, Kurt. But for me, that's not what really turns me on about physics. It's Understanding the theory that I could understand the way a four-dimensional scalar field would operate over cosmic time and then say, hmm, to measure that, not only do I want to measure that, of course, any you know, red-blooded uh, physicist would want to measure it, but I want to understand what are the impediments to measuring it first. That's what makes, so my friend Sabine Hassenfelder was on my podcast. She has I'm this book, Lost speaking in Math. to her tomorrow. Oh, great. So she has her book, Lost in Math. You'll talk about it. She'll go on her whole litany. I've, I've heard it before, and, and I respect her. But I said, one of the first things I said in my interview with her is I said, um, no experiment is not beautiful. Like, there's no such thing as, even if you look at, do you ever, have you ever seen a picture, Kurt, of the very first transistor that, uh, yeah. you know, Shockley and Barty invented? Mm -hmm. It's like a, you know, it's like some, some uh, silicon. It's like s'more. It's it like looks a like a s'more. s'more. It's got like a coat hanger and, and, some, and some marshmallow. It literally looks like that. That is beautiful nonetheless because they took the materials that they had and they made it work and they tested for these contaminations, impurities, systematic effects, and it is beautiful. All, all experiments do what are called null tests. You've probably heard of these, jackknife tests, where you take a set of data. Look, I do the cosmic microwave background. The cosmic microwave background doesn't know that the data that I'm analyzing was taken on a Tuesday. It doesn't care about that. So therefore, if I take data on a Tuesday, compare it to data on a Wednesday and subtract it to, what Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. What I get? Zero. Zero. Similarly, if I scan back and forth, I take all the data and I bin it when I was moving the telescope to the left versus moving it to the right. And I subtract them. What should I get? Well, that depends on 
it depends on the spatial homo homogeneity. I, I can and I can never pronounce that. And then I saw I saw isotropy. Well, the, but we know that the cosmic signals themselves are homogeneous and isotropic. So any you're right. There could be deviations from the ground, from the telescope mirrors, right, whatever. I'm, I'm just being particular. Yeah, I, so exactly. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So there's symmetries, and the symmetries are beautiful. What Sabine rails against is the reliance on symmetry to create new theories or to have guidance towards what we're doing in math. So I take issue with the fact that categorically saying beauty and symmetry and naturalness are are anathema to to, to new physics. So you you know I you know, I'm sure you'll hear that. I'm sure you'll get into it. But the basic philosophy that I have is that all experiments are beautiful, and that her thing is that you should not be guided by beauty and theory. So maybe we don't agree, disagree that much. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. Are there books that are experimentalist books? Much like much like I was mentioning, there's the Sankar's yeah. Quantum Mechanics. Or, or yeah, Well, you know, I... I didn't think that there were, and so my, my book is, uh, describes a lot about how a cosmic microwave background polarimeter works, how you measure what polarization is. Using in, the Nobel, in the Losing the Nobel Prize book? Yeah, so it's, it's about how um, a polarimeter works, what is polarization. It's the least well understood of all the three properties of light. I describe how that works. I describe how you can make your own polarimeter, uh, et cetera. And so I give a lot of analogies. I talk about classic experiments. And I talk about, in particular, there was a man named Edward Ohm, no relation to the Ohm of resistance fame, but he was working on the exact same telescope at Bell Labs that Penzies and Wilson were working on, and he did error analysis incorrectly, and because of that, he found that he had this persistent three-degree background that he could not get rid of, and he assumed that that error was due to, uh, was due to this conspiracy of error bars co-editing together constructively, literally doing a mistake that my freshman in physics would get failure marks for. Uh, and, uh, and because of that, he had the data that, that, that Penzias and Wilson would later get four years earlier. And so he is one of the Nobel Prize losers in the book. <laughs> so I described mm -hmm. that. What does that mean to do a systematic error? How, how do experimentalists build these things? Now there are, good, there are some books that talk about it. Um, there's a book by John Mather called The Very First Light that describes Kobe. Um, George Smoot wrote a book called Wrinkles in Time, also about Kobe, and they won the Nobel Prize in 2006. Um, but, uh, you know, 
uh, there, there, in, that was one of the lacuna that I felt I could repair and make a contribution to with losing the Nobel Prize. How about for these physicists who are second year, they're smart upper, they're going into the upper year, and they want to understand, and they're theoretical physicists, and they want a textbook like that takes you from from knowing virtually nothing to how do you, yeah, what, what are so, some experiments and how do you do the how do you perform the requisite analysis? So Jim Peebles, who won the Nobel Prize last year at Princeton. Uh, who's hopefully coming on my show pretty soon. And he's written a book called Cosmology Century. And it goes through, he was part of the original uh, Penzias and Wilson competitor team at Princeton that lost the Nobel Prize back in 1968 when Penzias and Wilson did win it. But they were famously scooped uh, by, and this was my graduate student's uh, advisor's graduate, his advisor, David Wilkinson, uh, and team and Peebles lost the Nobel Prize for the discovery, missed out on discovering the CMB. Uh, by only a little bit to this other team led by Penzias and Wilson. Anyway, Jim Peebles has written a book called Cosmology Century, and he goes through a lot of the classic experiments and how we came not just to know what we know about the CMB, which is very important, obviously, but also galaxy surveys. How, how did we start from 1900 knowing almost nothing if the universe was static, eternal, infinite, finite, whatever, uh, to knowing so much about cosmology, the age down to the you know, uh, tens of millions of years, the density down to you know fractions of a percent, the expansion rate, uh, depending on who you talk to, to either you know sub percent or nine percent, uh, and etc. So it's a fascinating book. It's brand new. And there's another book by uh, a colleague of mine on the Simons Observatory, also at Princeton, uh, named uh, Joe Dunkley. She wrote a book called Our Universe. And then another Princeton professor, you see Joe this pattern Dunkley? here. Joe Dunkley. Joe Ann Dunkley. Joanne, okay, okay. A book called uh, Cosmo, uh, Our Universe. And then Lyman Page, also at Princeton, wrote a book uh, just out now called uh, The Little Book of Cosmology. And they're very accessible, uh, especially to not... The first one, Jim Peebles' book, is more technical. You'll see Einstein equations. You'll see correlation functions. Uh, but, but, Sounds um, like my book. Yeah, I think, I think you'll appreciate that book. So... As a experimental physicist, what do you think is missing is needed for progress to be made on a new theory of everything or current theories of everything? Is it, like I was asking you in the notes, is it something as, as simple as a larger collider? Is it to build the collider in space? Is it not even a collider at all? Is it just analyze the cosmic background radiation with more resolution? What is yes. it? Yes. So obviously, you know, I have a bias towards uh, two things. One, things that I can contribute to. Uh, because that's where I'm putting my limited amount of, of, of attention. You know, uh, you, you have a limited amount of time, but you even have less attention that you can dedicate, right, to different things. Um, and so what I feel is worthy of my attention and that of my, you know, six graduate students and six uh, undergraduates and three postdocs uh, revolves around the CMB, but not only for studying the cosmic microwave background, for looking for this potential signature of inflation, uh, which would be this twisting, curling pattern of microwaves that were we claimed also as part of the BICEP2 experiment back in 2014. We declared we detected it. Turned out we had to re recant that claim. Uh, not that we made a blunder or made a mistake, but but we met, we attributed the source of the signal to an incorrect um, to an incorrect piece of evidence. Um, the uh, the biggest picture things to me are to understand whether or not time is uh, had a beginning, and I think. 
you know, that has just tremendous implications for, for not just me, but everybody in terms of philosophy, metaphysics, religion, mm-hmm. if you believe. Smolin has a great book on that. I don't know if you read it. Time yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the middle of it. Um, I was uh, invited to a conference at Perimeter Institute near you, uh, three or four years ago where I started to have conversations about him that could use the CMB to determine if there is a clock a certain universal clock and that universal clock might be connected to what we talk about in terms of CPT violation, CP violation, and that's using the properties of polarization as a sort of uh, detector of mirror symmetry. So we know that um, something called CPT violation is respected, but we, and, and we know that CP violation takes place, um, uh, but the kind of interface between the two of them can best be tested across cosmic scales. Because if there's a t- we know that whatever effect there is that breaks symmetry in the electromagnetism world in the sector that we call photons, that has to be incredibly small. But over cosmic distances of billions of light years of travel time, you might see the evidence for the rotation of polarization of both photons and some say even of gravitational waves. So there's a huge area of physics that's left to be explored. Um, and that I believe will tell us a lot about the fundamental aspects of the of electromagnetism. And then, if you do believe that there is a grand unified theory plus uh, gravity, so a theory of everything, then you would have to argue that um, if uh, if the weak force disobeys parity symmetry, then gravity must at very high energies. And so, where's the best place to look for uh, gravity's behavior at very high energies? The Big Bang or a bounce, and that's uh, something proposed by my colleague uh, Paul Steinhardt at Princeton, that the universe is actually cyclical, that there was no Big Bang, that there is no single origin of time, that the universe undergoes a perfectly classical physics uh, bounces and, and expansions over trillions of years, not just you know billions of years. Uh, and, uh, and this is uh, also related, there's rela- related work by Roger Penrose, and you may know this, conformal cyclic cosmology. So, that's the biggest question you could possibly answer. Is time unique? Is it, did it have a beginning? Uh, is it a singular origin as, as, you know, as people claim? Or are there other you know, aspects of, of the universe that we can only study using the universe as our biggest possible accessible particle accelerator? Do you think there are in, in principle limitations to experimental physics? For example, Lee Smolin said that you can't make theories about the universe from within the universe. I believe that's in Time Reborn. I don't know if you understand if I'm yeah, reading it. Um, reiterating. You know, yeah, so I've heard him speak about that, and I think that's related to this book, which I don't want to uh, break our conversation up to go look up this book, but he has his doubts about the existence even of the scientific method. So if the scientific method, which relies on hypothesis, kind of, you know, some kind of conjecture, some, some crisp test, some ability to be proven wrong in the case of Popper, et cetera, um, then, yeah, you might, you might think that if that isn't maintained, in other words, if you don't believe that that's the sine qua non of physics, of science itself, then, you know, then that trying to rely on experiment to reveal something new is plagued and fraught with the very bias that you're trying to solipsistically, uh, you know, eliminate, which is that you can learn something about the universe from within the universe. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's a fascinating question and Lee is one of the most original thinkers I know. So it's not possible for me to ignore what he says. 
on a day-to-day -day basis, do I think that it's not possible to, to learn about the universe? Of course not. No, I do. I, I believe we can learn tremendously about the, about the, uh, about the composition, the structure of the universe on a practical level. And so to be honest, I don't really concern myself so much of like these questions, the ultimate question, like, do I exist? You know, do I have free will? I actually don't personally find those interesting. I know you're interested yeah. in it. Yeah. Uh, do you forget about if you find it interesting? Do you happen to believe that you have free will? I do. Free yeah. Free will I, in general. I do. Okay, and how does that comport with your experimentalist reductionism? I don't know if you believe in reductionism, but it's. I don't. Powerful. I don't necessarily believe in reductionism. I, I find all these things kind of again. Um, so I participated with Stuart Hoffman, who is a good friend. Uh, not Stuart Hoffman. Um, uh, Stuart Hameroff at uh, University of Arizona, who runs a, a science of consciousness seminar every other year uh, alongside Roger Penrose and others. And actually, Noam Chomsky spoke with me a few years ago here in San Diego when I was here. And, uh, you know, I became very frustrated and disillusioned a little bit because they couldn't even, like, say for sure what consciousness was. And yet they said they have a science of consciousness or they're working towards a science of consciousness. And I know Sam Harris is the hard problem until you understand. So it's not so much that I feel if I can prove it or I feel like I'm a hypocrite because I believe in free will, even though I am an experimentalist. No, it's more that I think the burden is on other people uh, who believe that there isn't free will and there isn't, you know, there, there is super determinism. And, and I know people will just throw it around like the block universe and it just, but there's no evidence for it. So I, I guess the question okay, is, I'll give you, the, yeah, go I'll, ahead. I'll play devil's advocate. <clears throat> sure. Let's say you have free will. Okay. Well, so that means you made a decision of your own choosing. Well, what caused you to choose in that particular direction? And then if you say, well, I had some play in that, well, then I ask what caused that? It's just what caused until you get to something that is outside of you. So for example, the initial conditions of the Big Bang maybe, or your mother giving birth to you, which you didn't choose. How is it that you had free will? I guess I would ask kind of like the Turing question, like how would you tell the difference? Like if I did have free will, you know, uh, you know, as they say, like I have to believe in free will, I have no choice. Uh, <laughs> but, but the question of, you know, I, I would say, isn't that, is that the super, you know, the superset of all events that have taken place since the Big Bang? If you want to say that that's deterministic, when we know that there's certain quantum decoherent effects that cannot be modeled as as intrinsically being deterministic, or could possibly allow for um, for violations of certain Bell's inequalities, uh, if you look at it that way, I guess it just then then it becomes very very too much too all encompassing. So like I I recount to somebody a couple of days ago like. When I was dating my wife, we went to an astrologer, and she knew I didn't believe in astrology, and she wanted to have fun. So she said, "Go tell her, uh, tell her about yourself, and she'll predict your horoscope." And so I said, "Yeah, I'm Pisces. I do this, this, and this." And she said, "Oh, it's going to be good. You guys are going to do this, and and blah blah." And I said, oh, "Is it is it really true that Pisces are born in September? I, I forgot. Oh no, you're born in September. Yeah, I'm born in September. Oh, you're a Virgo." But don't worry, this, everything I said is still going to happen. Anyway. <laughs> so it's like, what, was the, what is the difference? Like if everything is so all-encompassing, then I guess- the I'm a Virgo too, by the way. Oh, you are? Okay. Well, mm -hmm. Virgos are the ones in their right minds or something. I don't know. I, th I think, you know- it's, uh, I, think, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. Well, I also happen, I wouldn't say I believe in free will, but I don't find the arguments against free will as particularly convincing. I just want to know what your opinion was. So is it your counter argument is that is the Turing test. How would you tell one way or the other? It's an experimentalist yeah, question. Exactly. And, and, and isn't it, I'm a, I'm a pragmatist, Kurt, you know, at the end of the day, 
you know, what I'm concerned about are, are things that I can get a crisp answer to. So I don't believe I'll ever get a crisp answer to that, nor do I. And you could ask me about God. And I don't think I'm going to have like some answer about God or the existence of God. But I think, you know, I think a place for a physicist, especially an experimentalist, is to be agnostic, but actually agnostic, which means like if you just don't go to church or you don't go to synagogue, in my case, um, you go to the same, you know, you, you have the same religious uh, performance as as Richard Dawkins. Like there's no functional delineation between you and Richard Dawkins. I actually had this conversation with Freeman Dyson before he passed away. You know, because he said he's an agnostic. And I said, well, what church do you go to? He goes, ah, I don't really go to church. I said, so, oh, so you go to the same church as Richard Dawkins. And he's like, mm-hmm. cognitive dissonance a little bit. So um, I, what, I, what I look at is uh, behaviorism. So how do I behave? Mm-hmm. And if I knew that everything was controlled uh, by, you know, the initial condition state, if there was a Big Bang, which we don't. So I, I guess I, I think about it in terms of what is the pragmatic day-to-day implication of this does it does it have any bearing on me uh individually so mm-hmm. in the case of free will i don't think it does i don't think i'll behave differently and treat my kids you know my one kid hits another one i say oh well you didn't really have free will so i'm not gonna be no of course i'm gonna punish them um or, or make them understand and apologize i'm not gonna lay it off as as some people like michael Shermer, i've had this conversation you know he basically is much more libertine about this on the other hand if god exists that's a much bigger question, right? As and I'm not saying I'm not I'm not saying if I believe or I don't. As I said, I'm a fully practicing devout agnostic, meaning I go to services, uh, I, I I I read and I learn. I've taught myself Aramaic so I could understand the arguments of the second holiest book in Judaism called the Talmud. I learned that at age thirty; it wasn't easy, uh, and I study it on a regular basis because I want to take it seriously. Because if God exists. That would have a, if you knew, I don't know your religious beliefs and it almost doesn't matter to me, but if you knew, like I asked Sean Carroll this question, I said, you once, you you know, what is the probability the multiverse is true? He said 50%. I said, what's the probability that God exists? He said less than, less than uh, 5%. Right, right, right. right. He didn't say zero. So imagine now that means he's open. He is a brilliant man. So I could tell him, I could, let's say I provide evidence, whatever, some miracle that he can't dismiss. And then he believes it. So he would change his life. I know that he would, even though I don't, I don't think he thinks the probability is even that high, by the way. Uh, but but it, it was a good soundbite. We had a good conversation about it. But do you know what I'm saying, uh, Kurt? The bottom line is I'm concerned with things that will impact my life as a behaviorist. How will it change my behavior? How will I change my treatment of the poor, the sick, uh, my wife, my kids, my, you? How will I change my behavior is much more influenced to the good, I would say, by wrestling with the question of whether or not God exists, whether or not it does exist is an important question for that reason. Because if the answer is yes, it would have huge implications. And even Dawkins has said, like, he doesn't rule it out. So, um, so, but free will, <clears throat> if you told me that, you know, everything is super deterministic, it wouldn't change how I operate on a daily basis. You mentioned, you mentioned if the Big Bang happened. Now, you also said earlier that we have evidence, and I think it was Jim Peebles' book, that yeah. goes over how you how we even know about what an instantaneous amount of time after the infinitesimal amount of time after the Big Bang. Okay, well, but that's after the Big Bang. That's presupposing the Big Bang. So not necessarily. So, so, yeah. So I always used to say, if I could ask God if God exists, uh, you know, what what happened? Uh, one question. I'd say, what happened on the Tuesday before the Big Bang? 
In other words, you know, Hawking used to say it doesn't make sense to ask what predated mm -hmm. the Big Bang. Right. Um, right. I don't think that's actually correct uh, because you can have many, many legitimate scenarios <clears throat> in which time is cyclical. It's just uh, there's possibility yeah. for that. And, and if that happens, there's a perfectly great explanation for what happened on the Tuesday before the Big Bang. It was a fiery hellscape of collapsing you know, all the material energy and, and, and properties of the, early, of the universe that pre-existed on Again, I'm not uh -huh. stating I believe it. Uh -huh. I'm just saying it is a well-posed question. Now, can a theorist and an experimentalist work together as Paul Steinhardt uh, and, and his collaborators are working? And in part, the mission of the Simons Observatory is to falsify his hypothesis. So you cannot falsify the Big Bang hypothesis as such. In other words, the Big Bang would be an aspect of a collapsing universe scenario called the cyclic universe. There'd be the equivalent of a hot, dense, uh, and again, another you know, shout out to Sean Carroll. He says a good thing, which is that the big, when you say the Big Bang, you're really talking about a period about a minute or two um, uh, from, the, from time backwards to a minute before this event when our extrapolations of classical physics would imply a singularity. It's basically the end of our, of our knowledge or the beginning of our ignorance, he calls it. So the Big Bang is really a shibboleth. It's a, it's a shortcut. It's a, it's a code word for where does our ignorance stop? And our ignorance stops about a minute afterwards when we start making, uh, we start synthesizing the very first elements. You know, I'm, I happen to think that our ignorance is, is, is so far greater. And I do this thought experiment where it's like, imagine just you're a few billion years from now, maybe, maybe 90 billion or whatever whatever order of magnitude and then and we're on earth and we have our sun but we look out and we and the galaxies are moving so far away that we see almost nothing but we wouldn't we wouldn't know that anything else existed right okay so that's just a few billion years from now given presuming our current theories of general relativity and cosmological expansion are correct okay well what about now why do we think that we're in such a privileged position that we have so much knowledge to even Think we're on the we're one percent of the way there to a theory of everything. For example, by the way, what do you think of Eric Weinstein's theory of everything? So he and I are very close uh, collaborators, friends, and and we talk about this a lot. I've encouraged him um, to to really start thinking about ways that we could revive both the um, both the kind of excitement and the sociological milieu that happened before 1974 in physics. And that's the period of time that Sabine and, and Eric and others have claimed was like basically the end of physics. Like there haven't been new discoveries or predictions, which I argue with both of them on my podcast. Um, but, uh, right. but, yeah. but essentially they want, he wants to recreate the urgency of the Manhattan project of the MIT radar laboratory uh, of the world war II generation of the shelter Island generation post world war II, when physicists were chauffeured around by secret service agents um, because they, they contain within them uh, national secrets and national treasures. He wants to recreate that. And, uh, and I'm hoping to you know, engage with him as an experimentalist. I'm not a mathematician. I do understand some of the math that goes into it. Uh, you must know that he is you know, universally looked upon in the physics community with both, with both uh, skepticism because he hasn't published anything. Although as if you well join my, if you go to my... Uh, uh, my YouTube interviews with him, I've done two now. And in the second one, I, I have actually downloaded his slides from his Oxford talk in 2013. One of my undergraduates digitized them. And so if you sign up for my mailing list at briankeating.com, I'll send you a copy of his lecture notes 
from that uh, lecture in 2013. That's about as close as we get right now. Uh, because he's in that making hay phase, Kurt, which I'm sure you've been in a state of flow where you're actually you're just producing great content for your film, for your, uh, for your research, for uh, the other projects, for this YouTube channel. And you're just singularly focused on this thing and it obsesses you and, and you want to learn more about it before you then take these tentative, furtive steps to publication. So I would say, I said he's looked upon simultaneously with skepticism but also dismay because he's a great communicator of science. And he believes, as he said in my podcast interview, that uh, physicists are the worst at PR uh, that have ever existed because we have the greatest material. Uh, and instead, we just keep regurgitating the same double slit experiment, the wormholes, multiverse, you know, where we have the hot vibration. You know, I'm not saying if I... I 100% agree with Eric Weinstein on that. It's, it's incredibly, incredibly boring. That, yeah. Oh, yeah. It can be up and down at the same time. Exactly. So there's a limit to that. So, I, but but then he'll go but on Joe Rogan. And, I'm referring to superposition to that. Yeah, and uh, he'll go on Joe Rogan show, and six million people will watch it. And you know, that's six million people that will be a, you know, potentially. There's some kid out there who, like me, at age twelve, they didn't have podcasts back then. Uh, but uh, but we'll think. Well, that's really cool. I want to learn about. I used to read Isaac Asimov, not his science fiction books. He wrote a tremendous amount of nonfiction in science, chemistry, the history of chemistry. I devoured it at age 12. Flatland, the book Flatland. Have you ever read that book, Kurt? No. Oh, you got to read that book. I heard of it. You will love it. Carl Sagan. It has, it's, uh, it's by Ed, uh, Edward Abbey uh, in the late 1800s, Victorian England. And it's, it's actually like a commentary on racism, which is really fascinating. But, but it also talks about what it's like for a two-dimensional creature to visualize the th third dimensions. And in so doing, it helps you visualize what the fourth dimension might look like to a three-dimensional mm -hmm. creature. Um, you have to read that. So that was, an that was a foundational book in my education. You asked me about books earlier, but that is one of them because I started thinking geometrically. And there's always the siren song of thinking geometrically that leads you to beauty and symmetry and everything else. But... In my case, it actually led me to like, well, let me think about things that I can't access with experiments. So the most important experiments are called Gedanken experiments, thought experiments. Einstein right. was the greatest experimentalist of all time in that sense, because that's what led him to create theories of relativity in both, both theory, general and special. So I hope that kids out there will take what Eric's doing seriously. I am trying to encourage him to actually, I've actually invited him. I'm on record multiple times. I'm the only physicist in the world apparently, which is sad to me, that's invited him to be a scholar in residence here in San Diego and, and work on, uh, on actual experimental predictions and tests for geometric unity, which is what he calls his theory of everything. I've also had on Stephen Wolfram on my podcast. I've also encouraged him to look for you know, ways that we can uh, collaborate together to think of ways we could test it as an experimentalist. Because again, I am obsessed with time. Tick tock, tick tock. And mm -hmm. um, I'm obsessed with the brevity of life and how short a period of attention span we have to make discoveries. And so I don't want to waste my time. But if there are potential avenues, like Eric could be correct, could be wrong. Paul Steinhardt could be correct, could be wrong with regard to the bouncing models that he's proposed. Uh, Stephen Wolfram could be right, could be wrong. So I'm actually talking later today about ways we can get the whole physics community together and a kind of like a shelter island or revival of, of the theory of everything uh, studies, maybe through uh, Zoom, maybe through a webinar, 
something like that. And thinking really big to attract the greatest minds to attack this problem and rejuvenate, as Eric says, this rock star status that physicists used to have in the, in, in the 20th century. Okay. Is there much movement on that, the, this Manhattan physics project? Or is it Not, right now it's just conversations between you and Eric and maybe two other people and it's over yeah, Zoom? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of inspired by, in part by, by David Kaiser, my friend at MIT, uh, who, who wrote a book recently called Quantum Legacies about the, the aftershocks of the World War II projects and when physicists were chauffeured around with you know, bodyguards and, uh, and also by Eric. So, no, we're thinking about it. We, we, we have kicked around some ideas for an hour or two yesterday. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know when, if, if we can actually put together. That would be the dream, like the Solve conference. You ever seen that picture with, like, Marie Curie and Niels Bohr and Einstein? Yeah. You know, I, would, I would be taking the picture and putting it on Instagram. I wouldn't be actually in the picture. Uh, but the point is, let's get, let's get the most creative people together. Uh, but we can't ignore funding. We cannot ignore basic research funding. And that's what's so exciting about partnering with the Simons Foundation. They really primarily support non-application driven science, mainly math, computer science, computational biology, astrophysics, and now the Simons Observatory pictured behind me to look at potential resolutions and answers to you know, the greatest questions of the human mind. Tell the audience where they can find out more about you and what you're up to. So I'm doing a lot. You asked me in the notes, we didn't, you know, fully or in the beginning. My mission is really to communicate, you know, what I want to be and maybe I have a kindred spirit with you. It's kind of like the Joe Rogan of science. Like I want to do stuff uh, uh, and it doesn't have to be restricted to science. Uh, there are people like we mentioned, Dave Rubin, uh, Zuby is, is uh, going to appear soon. Michael Shermer, they're not scientists per se, um, but, but, but basically they have an affinity either for science fiction, which I claim allows you to do thought experiments. <laughs> and so we talk about uh, things that revolve around academic freedom. In the case of my podcast, which you can find on YouTube at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating. And uh, you can find me on Twitter. And my goal is to really have incredible conversations that stimulate me uh, to think about the future legacy that I want to leave uh, on earth, which is, uh, which is to have this uh, impact on gleaning wisdom and communicating a vision for curiosity, for wonder, for imagination. And, and that's part of uh, you know, this tripartite vision that I have uh, for my life. So yes, long story short, find my podcast on Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube. Um, hopefully you can link to it and I'll link back. And, uh, and then I'm on Twitter, Dr. Brian Keating, Instagram, same thing. And I have a mailing list where I send out things like uh, personal notes and re book recommendations from people like Jim Simons to Eric Weinstein, et cetera.